0: Our guest today is multi-talented, multi-faceted, Mohamed Kerr. He has an eclectic taste and palate, undoubtedly influenced by the multiple continents and cultures he's been exposed to. We are proud to have him today on Moment to Moment. Mohamed, thanks for taking the time.
1: I'm sure you've had friends that have gone through the visa process. And family. Um, One of the key things is like these letters of recommendation. The end of my hour show, I would hide letters of recommendation under the audience seat and I'm like alright cool if you guys enjoyed the show then uh, fill these bad boys out scan them and send them in or drop them in the box on your way out and thank you so much <laughs> and these are the official
0: and, forms for of the immigration office correct the
1: actual real forms that my actual real immigration lawyer prepared
0: what's your relationship now to that American dream
1: it's Starting to treat nations in the same way that I treated architecture like architecture I don't care about the title
0: with all due respect and because you're friends I'm gonna poke a little bit I'm gonna ask you again because I care about you how has your relationship to the American dream changed in light of the Trump administration you personally and your pursuits
1: I'm just trying to get my green card
0: I was completely flabbergasted at such minor things Fine points and idiosyncratic things that I'd skip by a million times—I had no idea. How has architecture served, informed, or inspired your instrument as an artist?
1: I get like lost in your question because it's so interesting the way you speak. I just want to keep listening to you talk. Yeah. Be honest.
0: Hey, buddy, this is—I'm interviewing you. <laughs> Our guest today is multi-talented, multi-faceted Mohamed Kerr from New Zealand with Sudanese origins, also schooled in Oman. He has an eclectic taste and palate undoubtedly influenced by the multiple continents and cultures he's been exposed to. We are proud to have him today on Moment to Moment. Mohamed, thanks for taking the time. First of all, how is your COVID in New Zealand and how has it been since you've been back?
1: I mean, I think the whole world by now knows what COVID is like in New Zealand, practically non-existent. There's concerts going on. It's like a utopia over there.
0: That's great. There's a moment in your forthcoming green card special where you ask the audience for feedback and to look under their seats to provide that feedback. Can you tell us about that for a moment?
1: I'm sure you've had friends that have gone through the visa process. And family. Um, And family, yeah. And um, one of the key things is like these letters of recommendation that you need to get in general. And uh, so what I thought I'd do is at the end of my hour show, I would hide letters of recommendation under the audience seats, So that when I ask them to look under their seats, they, they see these letters of recommendation. And I'm like, all right, cool. If you guys enjoyed the show. Then uh, fill these bad boys out, and you know, scan them and send them in, <laughs> them in, or drop them in the box on your way out. And thank you so much. And
0: these are the official forms for the immigration office, correct? The
1: actual, real forms that my actual, real immigration lawyer, James Frankie, shout out James Frankie, <laughs> prepared.
0: So that leads into the following question. This is about the American dream, and your show really gets into that. Can you touch on the American dream and help our audience get a sense of that coming from a Sudanese New Zealander perspective? Mm-hmm.
1: I think that the American dream is a scary thing where it's kind of like this big thing that you kind of like work your whole life towards. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the media have to kind of like obliterate your whole schedule to get there. You make all these sacrifices. If you're living in metropolitan cities, it affects the way that you even converse with people. Kind of like, you know, who's this person? What can they do for me? It's it's very intense. Mm -hmm. New Zealand is all about having a balanced week, regardless of socioeconomic class. Mm Look, Frankie, I was in New Zealand most of 2020. Why did I come to LA? Why did I leave the most perfect place on earth to come to literally probably the worst place in America can right you, now, can pandemic-wise? Can you, uh,
0: let's just set the context here. This is 2021 at the time of this taping. New Zealand is the utopia. Los Angeles is Corona-fornia, uh, epicenter <laughs> of COVID. And so that begs the question. Yes.
1: I mean, yeah, obviously it was a bunch of work stuff, but in reality, I think that I could have done most of everything remote. Mm-hmm. I think I came here for like, a, a, it's, it's an energy, right? It's an energy that people have, an excitement for life, a certain a sense of drive and ambition. Like, you know, Hollywood makes the greatest movies in the world for a reason. It's that people here love to dream and these dreams are addictive, you know, and you can really feel it in a room. There's a certain lack of that in New Zealand, and a lack of that in many countries like New Zealand, where it's so utopic, people are, you know, kind of settled down super early, and uh, there's a certain sense of like, yeah, everything's good. Here's the best way to explain it. <laughs> America, there's 24-hour news. Right. In New Zealand, the news is an hour a day. Frankie, you can miss the news in New Zealand. i miss
0: <laughs> the news. When you're speaking, it reminds me of, I'm calling you from you know Honolulu, Hawaii. This has been my you know, home when I went to college and then off to New York and L.A. for 15 years in that wilderness and was dying to get back here to my adoptive home. But I'm saying that because Hawaii has always served for me as a personal mecca of sorts. My travels over the years, a place of creative renewal, inspiration to reconnect, contact my roots. There's a slower pace. There's a rhythm of island life. And as Mm -hmm. I'm hearing you speak about New Zealand, I can't help but think of the corollaries, not just between Hawaii and New Zealand. But, you know, small towns in Texas and Winnemucca, Nevada and Tulare, California, these places where there's Absolutely. I don't want to say a simple life to imply there's a lack of sophistication and incredible intelligence. But this small town feel versus the big city pole, could that be a more apt description on what you're talking about? Or is it something very endemic I, to the I, Kiwi lifestyle?
1: Frankie, it's definitely a more apt description of what I'm talking about to the point where I'm probably going to plagiarize what you just said (laughs) as something that I now say.
0: Right. Well, I guess the question is, where has there been a personal Mecca for you over the years and all of your travels? A place that creatively inspires, whether it's a park, a location, somewhere inside you go to tap your own creativity?
1: Unquestionably, New York City. I'm addicted to New York City. I'm in love with New York City. I love the new friend Lebowitz, Scorsese, Netflix. Carolina I like just Doco. saw that.
0: I just saw that. And I was crying with pangs of regret for leaving Noctalgia. her. I miss her. She is like the one that got away every day. And of course, we're talking about the city that never sleeps, New York. What's been your relationship to her over the years?
1: I actually originally studied architecture. So I've always loved a city, and I've always experienced a city in a different way. I experience it very close up. I look at the facades and structure and designs of the building themselves. It's like a sensory overload every day. I was lucky enough to move there when I was financially comfortable. So I was able to ex- live in great neighborhoods where you step outside and you hear the music, you see the cafes, you see the energy. And you know what I really love about New York is that it is a bit of a microcosm like every neighborhood feels like a different world. It's a place where it's so easy to get lost and yeah. inspired. It is my perfect city, and I'm even planning on getting a place there end end of the year. Try this bi-coastal life.
0: Well, well, listen, I tell people I'm tri-coastal. You know, New York, L.A., Honolulu. Wherever you go, we are.
1: Let yeah, me, you, we're not we're not all as successful as you. We, we can only. Uh, yeah. I, I get it. You're comfortable.
0: <laughs> well, I just I'd, I'd humble brag on my architecture buddy here. You know, I must say. You, <laughs> You just talked about being around the city when you had money. I can tell you. I've been, to borrow from Sean Penn, I've been broken sleeping on couches in L.A. I've been broken sleeping on couches in New York. I've been broken sleeping on couches in Hawaii. Let me tell you, the view from the gutter is never as inspiring with anonymity as it is New York. I walked with you. Last fall, you and I had a chance to walk around 8th Avenue in Chelsea. I remember. And I know those streets like the back of my hand from a misspent youth. I could tell you by the sounds and smells on 8th Avenue and where we're getting close to meatpacking, depending on the smell of the bums and urine, to how close we're getting to (laughs) that 5th Avenue architecture. And I know every building, every gesticulation, every utterance, every sound at different times of day. And yet, walking around New York with you. You pointing out details. I was completely flabbergasted. Such minor fine points and idiosyncratic things that I'd skip by a million times. I had no idea. How has architecture served, informed, or inspired your instrument as an artist?
1: I get like lost in your question because it's so interesting the way you speak. I just want to keep (laughs) listening to your thoughts, to be honest. Hey buddy, this is I'm interviewing you. (laughs) Man. You know, architecture is in everything I do. You know, like when I went to architecture school, I realized something that was very important, and that's that I wasn't studying architecture at all. You learn architecture at architecture firms. What I was really studying at university, even though it was quote unquote architecture degree and master's, mm-hmm. is I was studying marketing. So you're taught how to think conceptually, execute. You're being creative and being very programmatic. So instead of looking at my degree, I said, forget the degree, forget the title. I'm looking at a set of skills that can be applied to anything. It can even be comedy. Right. If you look at industrial design, um, for example, which is the design of industrial objects like chairs and phones, you take an idea that exists, like the cell phone, which has been around for 50 or so years, and then you you add your own twist on it. Like here's the iPhone, a screen you just touch. And then you present it to an existing marketplace that buys that iPhone because they know what phones are and they know the innovation you've made. A stand-up comedy, you take ideas that exist, you put your own twist on them, and you present them to the audience. So the only reason anyone ever laughs is because they relate to something. And so I was able to kind of see what um, these building blocks that I learned in architecture um, had in common with anything creative. Uh-huh. And so I've used it in everything I've done, whether it's... Uh, uh, Whether it's our creative strategy and and investing agency or writing a comedy hour, to me, it's all the same.
0: Well, you started in music, and so I can imagine the musical architecture and being signed to a major label. It is the same for you, you would say?
1: It is absolutely the same. You know, so. I remember my brother's friend had free studio time at university. So I was studying full time. I was working full time and I was doing like stand up comedy and, and music all at the same time because I was bored and it's New Zealand. I was kind of go into studio and listen to him making music. And I started to kind of see the similarities even between stand up or design and music, you know, writing things that are catchy, the poetry of, of the written word. It's all the same rhythm as you would. Apply to writing anything, whether it's not something that's humorous or something that is compelling and, and rhyming and, and whatnot.
0: You just said there's a rhythm that's the same. A very well-known artist once asked me, what's the molecular structure of water? And I was like, oh, uh, H2O. He said, OK, what's the molecular structure of ice? I said, uh, wait, H2O. He goes, yeah, molecular structure of steam. I said, H2O. He said, you know, Father, Son, Holy Ghost and all that. But that's my art. And one way it comes out is... Screenwriting is one way it comes out as a sculpture and another way wow. it comes out in my cello. Does that relate to you on what you're saying? We have architecture, music, and comedy. Is there some molecular commonality that comes from the essence of you?
1: Absolutely, and I love the way that that person or that artist described that to you.
0: You talked about then music kind of came to you while you were in school, Conan O'Brien once said, there's nothing more intoxicating than coming to terms with an ability. I know you started off in music and then you were signed to a record label and most yeah. people would have stayed on that track. But at what mm-hmm. moment did you have that similar moment of intoxication that not that you could do comedy, but that it could actually touch, move and inspire people? Can you walk us through where that was, when that was?
1: I think I had much more of a personal connection to comedy than I ever did music. Music I did because I loved my friends and I wanted to hang out with them and make cool things. And the thing about music is that it took me, you know, 30 minutes to write a song, I have 30 minutes to write all the top line or the lyrics and melodies, right. and then suddenly I'm sitting at the back of a studio, bored as these two guys produce for the next several weeks. <laughs> You know and then once we go on tour it's like I remember when we did our European tour and I was looking out at the audience and there's all these people in the front and they all knew the lyrics and I felt like an imposter because it meant something to them. But it didn't mean too much to me. It was thirty minutes out of my day. There was like a disjunction somewhere. Even though I've got how to write a song and I knew how to write music that would end up in movie campaigns. like we got over one hundred and fifty placements on television series, mm-hmm. movies, like I remember like the trailer for the boxing movie. Um, our last placement was two weeks ago, even though we haven't put anything out in years you know, four <laughs> or five years So here you so, are at um, the top,
0: the professional yeah. side of this, but creatively, you're
1: Hollower, or uh, bored? I think hollow is a really painful way to put it, uh, Frankie, but <laughs> I'm, I'm accurate. I do love a lot of elements of making music, and I just love my friends, and I love the overall experience, but when I tasted comedy, that's when everything changed.
0: And what was it about comedy, where if music was flaky baklava and comedy was your cheesecake, what was it about comedy that made it so delicious and satisfying for you?
1: And I feel like you're just there's no smoke and mirrors. There's no like, you know, like um, lighting tricks or backlit. There's no, there's Pretense. these theatrics, the marketing, yeah. the production, the other people on set. You're naked. It's just you and the stage and the audience. I remember the first few months I was a bit of a hack. I would kind of like, take the styles of other comedians and sure. kind of try to figure out I didn't know what my voice was sure but the second I tapped into my own personal story that's when it became something else
0: okay so you started off as most do with um, mimicry but then you moved up what I heard is you then moved into habitation and perhaps the it, bridge from mimicry to habitation was roots and you and your personal story and where you came from how did you stumble into that and that realization that that got you connected to you
1: when I started stand-up, I was approaching it in the same way I did music, which is very formulaic. I'm like, here's what a joke looks like. Here's how Chris Rock does it. You, you, you guys know when you walk in. I'm like, literally, I'm <laughs> walking, uh, talking in a whole different way. I'm like walking. I'm, like, I was almost pretending to be someone else S- and writing in utterance. the formulaic way that I did music. Yes. And then Scott, who was like the um, head of the classic comedy bar in New Zealand, the best comedy club in New Zealand. He was kind of like, you know, find your own voice, man. The vibe I got from it was like he was saying, I'm not seeing you on stage. I'm seeing another comedian.
0: Oh, wow.
1: He saw the facsimile. He saw it. And I remember like I'd won this national competition for stand-up in New Zealand. And I thought that I was good based on that. It was actually my brother was the one that told me that I did well in New Zealand, not because I was great, but because I was the only black comic on the circuit. And so I filled a niche that no one else was filling. And so if I ever go to a place where there's a lot of black comedians, I'm going to realize my actual talent level. And I was kind of like, so you just want to hurt my feelings. (laughs) Um, But it was really important because he was like, look, start talking about the personal things about your life, about growing up. You know, talk about how you are lonely or how you grew up kind of getting bullied or the immigrant experience or never belonging. Like all these things that we talk about that you will make super funny right. or very humorous in your storytelling, bring that to the stage. And that's when stand-up started becoming my therapy.
0: Yeah, cathartic, because you were able to sort of speak from your own truth. Yeah. I remember in 2004, I had a chance. I was up at the comedy store, and there was some really cool things happening, and it was a night in the back where Tracy Morgan was there and a bunch of other people, and... I think the set went okay, but I came to the back and, you know, it's, everyone's cool. They got their drinks and Tracy was there and he was, you know, hot, white hot from SNL and some other really mm. high profile projects. I was like, hey, man, I'm actually on my way to New York. I think Jim Norton had just uh, left right before and he was giving me some pointers about New York. And I said, Trace, what do you think? Anything about to get to New York? He's like, yo, dog. Yo, I saw your set, man. You want to do this or you want to do this? And I said, I want to do this. And he said, all right, first thing you do when you get to New York, you're going to go up to Harlem on 125th of Fred Douglas. And you are going to bomb and bomb and bomb and bomb your ass off. When you're done bombing, you're going to bomb some more. I go, why would you do that? He goes, and then he grabbed me by the collar and pulled me close to him as if we were going to kiss, which I was ready for. I started puckering my lips. And he said, mm-hmm. because then and only then, that's when you're going to start telling the truth. And I said, truth, yes, the truth. What? And he said, you talk about where you're from, who you set, who you be with, all this other shit's bullshit. It's mental Masturbation up there, dog. And I was like, so are we going to kiss or no? And so he kind (laughs) of let me go. And I I remember that lesson and it didn't really resonate. But then everything changed for me because the top of the next set was, what am I insecure about? Who am I? Okay, uh, I went to college, but I told my dad I'm going to be a comedian. He says, my dad's very Persian and educated. And I got dad, I'm going to be a comedian. he says, oh, that is perfect. You've been joking your entire life. And Mm-mm. that was painful to me at the time. But the more yeah, yeah. I kind of lifted up my raw nerve and that pain, the harder they laugh. And that was a lesson I never forgot that if I'm doing it for me and I'm just trying to connect to my truth. Thanks, Trace. The more I do that, the more I stay grounded and I'm less driven or carried away or caring about what they think and it's mostly about me connecting and the more honest I make it the harder they laugh if I try to be funny it's a repellent any part of that relate to you as you started to learn about telling stories about your father who you thought was a a James Bond character your mother and some of the nuances of grown up the way you did how much of that did you start to get that lesson of the more I stay inside of myself the more universally people relate to it
1: It was watching a special on Netflix where, like, I saw this comedian spend half her hour kind of doing the typical comedy set and then suddenly halfway through more or less retired from comedy and basically said that she's not going to do the self-deprecating humor anymore. And the rest of the hour was like this painful kind of like story time where she kind of restructured her bits and jokes and gave the background stories. And it was this moment where I realized that you don't just have to make people laugh on stage. As long as you keep them captivated, you're winning. Mm. And so I kind of suddenly felt like that was like a key to unlocking the things that I actually wanted to talk about. And I think that's where the true artistry of comedy comes in, where it's like the best comedy is when you're able to bring people down to an emotional point, almost like they're there with you. They're experiencing that you name, know, that traumatic memory over that experience. And suddenly you bring them out of it and they're just laughing their way to freedom in a sense.
0: I'm listening to you and I'm thinking of styles not to compare, but I'm going to compare. I think of the styles of Christopher Titus, John Linguizamo, chris rock on his long storytelling where you're getting information but not necessarily laughing and then when you least expect it an uppercut hits you that you didn't see coming who were your influences or who would you say inspired you in your writing process comedically
1: hannah gatsby that's who um who special i was talking about and then that. it's funny it's like i don't necessarily relate too much to her comedy like i don't laugh a lot but watching her hour inspired me so much Obviously, Pryor and Chappelle and Bill Burr. I love Bill Burr. Honestly, I just saw him live the other day, actually. And yeah. he's, like, he's such a, a legend, man. He just doesn't give a fuck. I really like the comics that aren't on stage to make you laugh.
0: That's well They're said. there
1: to tell the truth. And I think that so many huge comedians that are saying, like, I'm up here to make a change. I feel like only a few comics that are huge are actually, that's actually their mechanism. Most comedians just want to have an amazing hour, great branding, fireworks, and that's cool.
0: But that's not the North Star you're chasing. That's not your point. No,
1: not at all. With the agency that I'm a partner at, like we're developing, you know, writers and comedians now, one of which is kind of like taking the world by storm, Elsa Majimbo. Right. And so she's the type of comedian where she will be like, within the comedic space, she's going to be huge. And, you know, I think that she's going to work towards a point where she's telling her sad and kind of more traumatic stories. But for the time being, she's kind of like easing into it.
0: So what responsibility do you feel the artist has to having a message?
1: I think that if you feel like you want to have a a life where it's kind of like built off of that type of purpose, then you need to lean into that with full force. If you don't feel that way, you shouldn't.
0: Where do you feel that comes from for you? Where does that source come from? What is that gnawing of your soul or that brokenness or pain? What is that source for you and where do you think it came from?
1: Um, A couple of places. I think it's a certain level of guilt or like pressure that I feel Because my family's had such a great history, you know, like my granddad was the first ambassador for Sudan, international ambassador based out of London, one of the first people who got his PhD in educational psychology out of UCLA. He built the whole education system in in Oman, um, uh, handpicked by the sultan himself. Like, he did incredible things. And my other granddad or great-granddad was the first governor of Khartoum, and so there's all these people in education and politics that did meaningful things, and I'm out here telling jokes, so I need to make sure that there's meaning in that, and sort of like a respect for my legacy and my family. I just feel like everything has to be purposeful.
0: It sounds like having that substance came at a formative age early on, was instilled in you, and continues to inform what you do now. How has your relationship to the American dream changed from where we were talking about, you know, New Zealand without a whole lot of ambition, reading, mm. reaching so star-spangled happy, now you get here, Trump administration. Trump administration mm-hmm. is over What's your relationship now to that American dream?
1: It's starting to treat nations in the same way that I treated architecture. Like architecture, I don't care about the title. I care about the set of skills that I learned at architecture school. Mm. So now I guess when I'm in countries, it's more about how can I take the things that I've learned and the things that I really can appreciate from each of these countries or each of these places and incorporate them into my life. But I think that when it comes to that weird thing, happiness, for me it comes from surrounding myself with the right well, because, uh, you know, yeah. yeah,
0: I hear. that. And with all due respect and because you're friends, I'm going to poke a little bit. I can tell you were the grandson of an ambassador because that was a very diplomatic response and it tickled my soul. <laughs> I'm going to ask you again because I care about you. How has your relationship to the American dream changed in light of the Trump administration? You personally in your pursuits?
1: I just, I'm just trying to get my green card. Like this. this, this <laughs> hang on, Mohammed. There's so hold on, much, Mohammed. There's so much
0: corruption. Mo, Mo, you are black and you're Muslim and you're, you can't get canceled. It's everyone else that gets canceled for talking about you. You are canceled <laughs> proof. If there was ever, a, I think I just
1: got canceled for pointing that out. All I know is I'm being extra careful, frankly. Okay. Like, you know, I'm like, you That's know, and like, what do you think of the Trump administration? I'm like, listen what are we getting for dinner? Like, I <laughs> yeah. will change
0: You're like, so Ma- you're like Marge Schott, the owner of the Cincinnati Reds when asked about, all right, Hitler had a couple of good ideas. He just went about it the wrong way. What? Where'd everybody go?
1: You know, <laughs> <get to> str- <laughs> I understand. Yeah. The thing is about even like my standup is like, I try not to swear. Like I can talk about these topics without necessarily having to be so blatant. Right. You know, well, and, and that's it? what you can kind of see in so the hour.
0: You're very edgy, but you're also very Muslim. Uh, Islam is an important part of who you are, just like with Chappelle and, uh, many other notables. Can you talk about how your faith informs and maybe guides as a guiding track to your creative life?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm by no means like a perfect Muslim, you know, and I have such a long way to go. But there isn't, for example, I don't talk about dating too much. Mm-hmm. There's certain areas I won't talk about out of respect for my religion and my family.
0: But it's also created liberation within those parameters, because you have yeah. the certain non-negotiable lines in the sand of what you're willing to do. On some level, that must be freeing to know this is the domain that you'll play in. This is a part of your
1: sandbox. That is such an, a great way of putting it, man. Like, for example, I did well at architecture school because when we kind of have to design a building, it's like they give you all the limitations. It's like, you know, design and innovation is built off of, like, limitations in architecture. You know, it's all about saying, here's a school, there's a little gap where we need you to build your house, and then here's a skyscraper, and you have to make it all work, and the kids like to walk through this land, and you have to figure all this out. Mm-hmm. So having all these obstacles helps to define the overarching design proposition and result, and Beautiful. so... Right. Oftentimes, uh, obstacles can be opportunities in disguise. I can imagine
0: yeah. you being in architecture school and somebody being naughty, saying, Oh, that building looks like a phallic symbol. And you coming over saying, I see somebody pointing to God in reverence. And the question is, with what?
1: For me, it, for me, it was always form follows function.
0: Say that again. That was great.
1: For me, whenever, in architecture school, it was, it was always form follows function. I never designed something because I just liked the shape of it. Mm-hmm. It was always... I wanted to design things in a criticism-proof manner so that when I present it to the tutor that probably hates me, mm-hmm. I'd won most of the awards, I think, until this date out of my faculty. I'd won over a dozen awards in design in university during my time there. And I think that people didn't like that it seemed to come so easy. But what they didn't realize is that they were kind of focusing in the wrong space. Right. They, were, they thought they were studying architecture. I knew I was studying marketing. They thought that they were designing a building. I knew I was designing a presentation. And it was all because of perspective. The perspective was, we're not studying architecture. We're studying marketing.
0: That's brilliant. Do you think that your faith or your color of your skin held you back so far? And in which ways, if so?
1: It didn't in New Zealand. I mean, school sucked up until university, that's for sure.
0: In what ways did school suck?
1: Okay, well, I mean, in America, I think like 10% of the population is black. In New Zealand, (laughs) 0.3%. Not even three, point three. So you knew the three so, families. You guys all knew each other. Yeah, like uh yeah, it was basically me and my shadow. My shadow was like, <laughs> like and I had this joke where I say, you know, my my first black friend was Asian. You know like, <laughs> like he was my Wilson, if yeah, you will. Yeah. Um you know, being the only black kid in the schools that I went to in six schools over the course of a decade in New Zealand, um I experienced a lot of bullying, you know, like uh, my memories of school were that I loved class because that's when the teacher was there and, and, and I was safe. And whenever it was interval time or lunchtime and the kids would go out to play, I'd wait till everyone left and then I'd kind of check if the coast was clear. I'd sit at a big tree, I'd sit down right underneath it so I had a view of where everyone was coming from and I'd sit and eat and sit alone. And that went on for years.
0: Mo, it's no secret that comedy, when you really get down to it, and you talk to all the greats and people at the highest level... They all will tell you, to a man and woman, the well of the source of comedy is pain. Do you think this mm. is some of the pain that you experienced that ended up informing your comedy in process? Absolutely. How do you think that this pain informed your comedy?
1: It's this knowledge as well that this pain isn't unique to me. Uh-huh. Um, it is, I think it's a pain that's felt by all cultures, all genders, all sexes. And when I can talk about it on a stage with the understanding that people are the most susceptible to new ideas when they're laughing and that comedy can be used as a vehicle for pushing important ideas. I think that being able to take these sad experiences and push them through the vehicle of comedy, I can find a way of touching people that that have lived similar um, lives.
0: Beautiful. And then through that, they can relate to your experience and connect to their own experiences as well. Tell us about what you're working on next. I hear there's a book coming out. If you could share that with our audience that we can check out. We'll put links up on the blog and website.
1: I, I just put out my first debut book, which is called um, Alien of Extraordinary Ability, which is actually the title of my current visa. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's, it's actually got a tearaway green card recommendation form at the back of the book. <laughs>
0: You've kind of upgraded. You've now <laughs> continued.
1: Well done. And um, upcoming uh, March 20th, 21st. Uh, we're putting out a book uh, which I co created and co wrote with Elsa Majimbo um, and uh, as, as a collaboration with Valentino Couture brand. I'm excited about that as well.
0: Fantastic. Well, my friend, as they say back home, uh, Alhamdulillah, alaykum,
1: and alaykum, Salaam
0: <laughs> Alaikum. Salaam Alaikum. It was a pleasure having you, Mo Care upcoming book will have hyperlinked on the site and in development his green card special keeping the american dream still alive (laughs) post trump we thank you for being here being generous and being so thoughtful thank you for joining us on moment to moment appreciate you thank Thank you you so much for having me. thanks mo